Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. One of the reasons this podcast exists is to explore the enduring effects of the Seminole Wars on Florida and the USA. Pedro Zapata is a direct descendant of the Seminole who fought in that war and withdrew to survive and later thrive in the Everglades. He has been the face of the Seminole as a narrator for the annual reenactment of the Dade Battle in Bushnell each January. He speaks from the heart to inform visitors that the Seminole fought for their livelihoods, their families, and their homes so they could stay in Florida. Pedro Zapata, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to our uh, conversation today. How do the Seminole Wars still resonate among Florida Seminole today? You know, well, you know, we had basically a 40-year conflict with the United States government and an entire lifetime, and so, you know, that definitely resonates through the generations quite easily through stories being handed down and like for my grandmother, you know, she grew up with some of the people that were alive at the end of those conflicts, you know, so she knew those people directly that saw what war was like and knew what it was like to run and, and hide and fight. And so just having a, someone that has a direct connection to those wars affects a whole generation. What did you learn growing up about the tribe, about the Seminole Wars? Um, oh boy, just a, a lot of different things, really. The military structure is something that is built into the, the culture of, of our tribe, through our matriarchal clan system, through um, naming of our children. There is a high degree of organization that was present long before Europeans set foot on this continent. That structure has always been there, same time for war, that, you know, it's easy to um, fall into the positions of, that was needed to, to go to battle. Things like training of uh, warriors and leaders and things like that were done through hereditary uh, matriarchal title, things like that. And so some of the stuff I, you know, we hear stories of the different leaders and, um, you know, sometimes the story is a little different than what we hear in the history books as far as what happened to some of these different leaders and the role that they played and, you know, what they did and how important what they did was for us today. Because obviously, you know, Seminole Tribe of Florida wouldn't be here in Florida if it weren't for my ancestors that fought in those wars or fought so hard for so long for us to have the right to, to be here. Pedro, are you at liberty to say any of those stories about leaders that are different from what we hear outside of the Seminole Circle? We still practice our um, traditional medicine today. So it's always played a big part of all parts of our lives, including warfare. For us, like the escape from um, the Casillo de San Marcos and San Agustin, um, you know, in our stories, we use different um, types of medicines to be able to escape from that fort. Of course, you know, I've heard different stories from different tribal members about how that escape actually happened. <laughs> um, you know, from being able to do certain medicines that allowed us to fit through the window to be to stories that made guards pass out so that we were simply able to, to walk out of the fort. So again, you know, I've heard different things as, as far as, you know, how that exactly happened, but you know, medicine always plays a big part of that. A lot of times the stories I hear about some of the leaders is that they were assassinated before they left, things like that as well. So it's slight differences, oral histories handed down. And so, you know, sometimes, again, the oral histories don't always match up from one family to another. What have you learned through your own study in the years since about the Seminole Wars and your people in it? 
So, you know, of course, there's that cultural aspect. And I've also learned quite a bit through participating in living history for, gosh, 23 years now, I believe. Um, I've been doing living history. And so, yeah, I've learned quite a bit um, doing that as well from other living history people and historians and trying to match up what I learned that way with also with learned uh, again from speaking with uh, different tribal members and different tribal elders and, and kind of trying to, to match all that up and try to create a, a more complete story, a more complete history as far as uh, what happened during the wars. You know, learning, studying and being with other living history people, you know, just learning the specific battles and, um, you know, how many soldiers were there and things like that. Um, you know, one thing I learned is that the military side seemed to always lose a lot more <laughs> in battle than the Seminoles did. You know, I think a lot of that just had to do with the, the different fighting tactics that, you know, were being carried out between Seminoles and, and the U.S. military. Right. So some of us who study the U.S. Army and the soldier employment wonder, well, what were the secrets that the Seminoles have? Could they tell us what, what were they doing? What were they thinking? Anything like that is passed down either through the oral histories or through your own study that you can reveal to us? Plan, family, culture, medicine is always like central to everything. And so we would, you know, partake in special medicines before and upon returning from battle and going to war. The medicine uh, people were also leaders as well. So we did have actual organized training for different levels of our military force, whether it's a, a ground soldier or one of the commanding leaders that, you know, they had special training. Again, this was dependent upon what their clan was and what their family was. And, uh, you know, so learning those tactics definitely helped. Again, one of it's just a big different fighting style. You know, Seminoles, we were participating in now known as guerrilla style warfare, you know, where we weren't participating in the, the traditional European style of uh, standing in lines and formations in front of another group and just shoot at each other until, you know, one group has a few people standing at the end of the day. Um, you know, we were, you know, using the natural terrain and trees and, um, things like that to uh, to our advantage, you know, using the environment of Florida or wherever we're at to be advantageous in the fight and having a plan. You know, we were always trying to choose the battlefield and choose the time and choose the techniques for our engagements with U.S. military. If we weren't in the position to make that choice, usually we would not engage for very long before we, you know, disengage in the fight, you know, because then it's more advantageous if, if you know what your plan is going into the, to the battle. So these large engagements like, you know, Battle of Okeechobee, um, Day Battle, we knew what we were doing and we had a plan and try and execute that plan to the best of our ability. Pedro, tell me about the clans, because you just mentioned there. Would the clans be mixed in a battle or would there be uh, clans side by side? this number of this clan, this number of that clan, ready for a battle. And so, like, today we have, you know, like, seven clans that we still have here in Florida. You know, the Seminole clan system is it's a matriarchal system, so it's a fancy way of saying that it's passed down through the mother's side. So, you know, in traditional European Western culture, the family lineage is kept track, track of through the father, usually by adopting the father's last name. Um, but in most Native North American cultures, we keep track of family through the mother by adopting your mother's clan. And so, like, I'm Panther Clan, for example, because my mother is Panther Clan, because her mother is Panther Clan, because her mother was Panther Clan, going, what we say, all the way back to the, to the beginning of time. And so it's a really big and strong part of the culture is, is the clan system and its importance to facilitate education, ceremony, just general raising and rearing of children, and warfare as well. So when you would go into battle, you would go with your clan, with your family. And so it's kind of, I guess the best uh, analogy would be like going in as platoons 
and so you'd go with your clan, and so you'd all you'd have ways of keeping track of of your clan or your platoon when you go out to battle. So it would be less confusing. Again, you know, every military has to have some sort of organization on the battlefield to to try and cut down on, on confusion while you're in the midst of, of fighting. So we had uh, different ways of of trying to keep track of your your fighting unit. You said you're 23 years or so going to battle reenactments. Yeah, I was 14 years old when I started uh, doing living history, and uh, I'm 37 now. And what was the first reenactment that you went to, or the living history that you went to? It was one that my um, my older brother Brian had actually uh, helped organize at the Collier County Museum here in Naples. And, um, you know, he got started in living history a little bit before I did. And, you know, the reason I did is because my older brother was doing it. It looked, looked really cool, looked really fun. And so I started doing it uh, with him. And so he started out at another, muse- another event at the same museum here in Collier County. Um, they did something called the Old Florida Festival, which is like a timeline event. And uh, so he started participating in that, and then he organized battles or Billy Bullig battle or something like that. I'm trying to remember the exact name of the event. And I think he did it two years. And uh, so that's when I started participating um, in doing the, the reenactments. And then, um, you know, he started going to things like Dade Battle and so I'd go with him. And then in 1997, the Atapagi Museum opened up. And, um, and so once he started working there, the director of the museum, Billy Cypress at the time, he, uh, he asked my brother if he could organize a battle reenactment. And so I started the uh, Kissimmee Slough Shootout because uh, on the Big Cypress Reservation, uh, we have the Kissimmee Slough. So not to be confused with Kissimmee, Florida, Central Florida. So that reenactment um, went on for a number of years at the museum and then eventually got moved over to uh, Billy Swamp Safari. So I participated in that event about every year. I think there was only one year I didn't go because of a family event. So a lot of the reason I was doing living history is because of uh, what my older brother was doing. But, you know, I, as I grew up and uh, became an adult and, you know, started participating in these events and so I was able to drive I could drive to some of these events on my own as well. Um, pretty neat and made some lasting uh, lifelong friends through doing this as well. How long have you been going to the annual Dade Battle reenactment? Uh, gosh, I think I did that maybe the first or second year I started doing Living History, so I was probably 14 or 15 years old. Um, so it's probably somewhere around like 97 or something like that. How has it changed? Now, I don't mean the battle. We know how the battle goes. But the reception for Seminole from the people who are visiting? I mean, I think the public has always enjoyed the event. So I mentioned Billy Cypress, who was the director of the Atasigi Museum, you know, helped found and create the the tribe's museum. And so for a number of years, he did the narration at the battle. Because the date battle, they have a, per- a person uh, portraying um, Ransom Clark, and then they have uh, another a Seminole portraying Dumper. And so Billy Cypress portrayed that, that role for a number of years, till his uh, unfortunate passing. And then uh, the position remained vacant for, for a long time. Um, I think uh, my brother Brian, I think he did it maybe two or three years, possibly more, I can't remember. So he did it for a few years as well. There was a number of years where nobody was doing the, the narration. And so I think it was about maybe six years ago, something like that, maybe seven, um, that um, I decided to go ahead and start doing the narration at the day battle. They had been asking me for a while, but <laughs> about six or seven years ago, I finally decided to go ahead and do the narration. One of my big hesitations is I always like just being out in the battlefield and participating in the actual battle reenactment. But 
Um, I really do enjoy uh, doing the narration now as well. And so as far as the public reception, I, I think they've really pretty much always enjoyed it. You know, I think they enjoy having the, hearing the two sides to, to the battle, you know, hearing the, the plight of the soldiers and the, you know, tenacity of the, the Seminoles. And uh, so I think having both elements there really, you know, I think it adds to the, the story and to people's enjoyment and interpretation of the event and the actual going on of, of what happened there. When you speak, you talk about motivations for the Seminole. What do you want our listeners today to take away from the Seminole at the Dade Battle, specifically, and from the resistance to removal in general? Gosh, that's a big question. I really always want people to know is that, you know, Seminoles are are still here. You know, we're still here in Florida, that we're, you know, still practicing our culture, still practicing our language, still practicing, you know, our traditional religion. And all that is because of the, the fighting of our ancestors. And it's something that is changing now than from when I was uh, younger, as people do re- are starting to realize you know, that Native Americans are still existing, that we're not just in history books, and that we don't just exist in the past. You know, and that's why I work really hard at trying to convey to people that we are still here, because it is kind of a, a, a habit that a lot of people don't know they have, is speaking of Native Americans in past tense. And, uh, you know, I see that a lot when I'm at an event, even when I'm, you know, not doing a living history event. If I'm doing some sort of a cultural talk or demonstration, there'll be a tendency to say, oh, yeah, what did the Indians do or what did they say or what did they? It's like, well, I can tell you what we do do, what we do say, what we do feel, what we do believe, you know. So I do really like trying to, to connect that, you know, here's what happened in our past, here's what happened in our history, but it's also important to know that we're still here and we're still making history and still, you know, evolving as as a tribe and as a people. How do you feel about reenactors who are not seminal, who play the seminal part at reenactments? I understand sometimes they do it because there's no seminal available to come out. Um, Yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, the the reenactors that portray seminals, you know, there are very few that actually are members of the Seminole tribe of Florida. Really just a, a handful of us that, that participate in the battle reenactments. The, the rest, some of them do, you know, know that they have a Creek or, or Seminole ancestry, you know, in their in their history. It's just a lot of times it's a few generations back or, or um, you know, not enough to be enrolled with the federally recognized Seminole or Miccosukee tribes of Florida. But a lot of them got their interest because they, you know, did digging in their family histories and found out, oh, hey, look, I had a distant relative or, you know, sometimes only maybe three or four generations back that was Creek or Seminole or started their interest in learning the, the history of, of the tribe. And I know uh, there's quite a few that got their start also through um, like the Order of the Arrow and the Boy Scouts. And so they started learning about the culture of Seminole tribe through that. Although they're not members of the tribe, a lot of times they are speaking to the public for the most part are very upfront and honest about not being an actual member of the Seminole tribe, but they, you know, have learned a lot about the history and that's, you know, where their love is, you know, learning the history and, you know, conveying that little known history to whoever they can. And uh, I know personally, I've learned quite a bit from, from these other non-Seminole reenactors. You know, I've been able to, to add to their knowledge as well. I hope it's a, it's a mutual uh, <laughs> a trade there. What can you do to encourage more Seminole to participate in these reenactments? We've had a few over the years that have, you know, participated. Some that have participated a couple times and haven't, or come and go. And there's been a few that have 
uh, started and, and really stuck with it. You know, so just like anything, you know, I, I can't force anybody to, to want to do something. Um, you know, every person's an individual, and so they have their different interests and, and passions. And so for some people, it is the history. And sometimes that there's different ways of conveying our history, too, whether it's through living history or lecturing or working at a museum or, you know, preserving, you know, the oral histories of the tribe. You know, so there's a lot of different ways of helping preserve our history and teaching about our culture, including um, conflict of, of the Seminole Wars. So if there are Seminoles that do want to participate, you know, we always try to facilitate them or really anyone that, that wants to learn more about the history and, and the, the hobby of uh, reenacting in general. That's a nice segue, because I've heard you say you've spent your whole life trying to preserve and sustain Seminole culture and materials. So, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time with, with my maternal grandmother, um, my, my mom's mom, growing up. That's the Seminole side. My father is, uh, is Tejano. He's not Seminole, but he's Texas-born uh, Mexican. And so there's, you know, European and Native history down that line as well. But being here in Florida and um, being the, the matrilineal culture it is, I spent a lot of time with, with my maternal grandmother and uh well, it's not just my grandma, my great-grandma, and my great-great-aunt as well. Um, and so I spent a lot of time around them. You know, I was very young. They only spoke in Seminole to each other. They didn't speak English to each other at all. You speak English, so there can be a certain assimilation, and then there can be loss of the language and the, and the culture that goes with the language. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as I was saying, I took some of that in, but yeah, you know, I don't speak the language fluently. I wish I really did growing up and um, that I was able to learn it, but, you know, I do spend time, you know, as an adult trying to pick up more of it. You know, obviously learning any language can be can be difficult, whether English, Spanish, or uh, Native North American language. It definitely can be uh, difficult to, to learn. Because you said you spent your whole life trying to preserve and sustain seminal culture and materials. You mentioned a little bit earlier how people talk about Indians and maybe Seminole in the past tense, and you have to remind them that the Seminoles and Indians in general in America are still with us. Yeah, so in the culture growing up, it wasn't like uh, I wasn't just Seminole on the weekends or when there was a, a powwow or ceremony or something like that. You know, it was, it was a day-to-day thing, you know, hearing the, the, the culture of being immersed in it. It's really great, you know, when, you know, people learn about their Native ancestry and things like that. There's nothing wrong along with it. Um, just for me, it was just a part of the daily life, you know, and I was really fortunate um, to, you know, have that experience to be able to immerse in that culture day to day. started doing the living history when I was 14 years old. It wasn't long after that that my um, my brother Brian, who I mentioned, he started, when he started working at the Adopsigi Museum, so the tribe's museum that, that was soon to be open. And so I was able to go to the museum and see the artifacts and see some of the oral histories and um, see some of the stories people would bring in and the research that was being done to uh, create the clothing and the, you know, the text for the museum and be around a lot of people that had a, a passion for seminal history and culture, past and present. So that kind of started my relationship with, with our own museum, you know, when I was 14 and just going with my brother and hanging out while he was helping build the blaze in the museum and um, getting more information and um, trying to learn what more about some of the different artifacts and objects and texts that was in the collections of the museum. And sometimes they would uh, hire me for like VIP events before the museum opened, they'd, you know, give private tours of the museum to um, you know, local like uh, city and county commissioners and things like that. You know, because I was starting to, I was you know already pretty well in the living history pretty early on. Really, just kind of immersed in a lot of that. Um, and I've always been artistic as well. 
you know, drawing and coloring and a lot of doodling growing up and crafting and creating. And so trying to learn a lot more about the material culture was a pretty natural segue for myself. Especially, you know, my grandmother sewed our patchwork clothing as, as a living. So she was always sewing all the time, all day. She'd only stop to, to uh, you know, cook us dinner and lunch and things like that. And because, uh, you know, my grandma would live with us part-time. She'd have her own place, but she'd live with us part-time as well. And um, so she was always sewing. And so I was always around that material culture as well. And uh, so that got me interested in learning some of the older material culture things about you know things like finger weaving and beadwork and you know some of the older clothing styles and um things like that and you know, it's surprising how much my grandma knew about those older clothing styles even though she didn't sew it herself you know being separated from clothing that had been used at that point probably about 70 or 80 years and she still knew about them and um you know, how to to cut and construct some of those clothing so i thought that was kind of interesting Tell us about the art you create and how you integrate the Seminole culture into your painting, your ceramics, your canoes. Yeah, for the canoes, it's really pretty simple just because the, uh, you know, the canoes are part of our culture. They're part of our history. You know, we've, we've always made them. You know, we've never not made canoes and we continue to make them today. As far as my personal art, as far as like painting and sculpting, drawing, um, I don't know, it's just always seemed natural to include some part of that seminal heritage into it. And so like my sculptures would be pretty stylized human forms, but a lot of them would still you know, kind of harken back to some sort of a seminal imagery or clothing style or something along those lines. Unless you were looking for it, you might not necessarily know that there, but it definitely is included in a lot of my art. I can't say necessarily every single piece that I've done has a, a very direct seminal traditional imagery in it. But just having that passion for the Seminole Wars who have done, you know, paintings and drawings, you know, depicting um, that time. And, um, you know, I've always tried to, you know, always depict it from the Seminole side as well. You know, what was the war like from, from our point of view? What did it look like hiding in the woods? What did it look like hiding in the swamps? What did it look like as we went about our days? Some of that more realistic imagery was geared definitely towards the, the, the wars and how it looked like from our vantage point. Now, that being said, I haven't really done a lot of that drawing and painting and sculpting in, in quite a number of years. I have focused a lot on our traditional arts in probably the last 10, 12 years. So, you know, like our traditional uh, woven baskets and um, wood carving and canoes and leather work and things like that and trying to um, maintain those and um, in some cases revive some of those arts or, you know, rekindle them. Like, for example, as I mentioned, you know, we've always made canoes. We've never stopped making them. But in the last 40, 50 years, we haven't hardly you know, really had a need to use them in our day-to-day -day lives. So with that, there's been fewer and fewer canoe carvers and less and less refinement on those canoes being carved. And so for me, you know, I've been trying to learn about carving canoes, but also trying to um, maintain the, the refinement of those canoes from when they were being used in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, when we needed to use them, when we had to use them to, to get from one place to another. And, you know, I don't necessarily have a, a master canoe carver over me saying, oh yeah, you need to you know, carve a little more here or shape this just like this or, you know, if you do it this way, the canoe will work like this. And since I don't really have that master canoe carver, learn from other carvers, but not necessarily a canoe carver. And so I've used you know, measurement um, and drawings and photos of some of our canoes from when we were using them every day to know, okay, when we're using them, the canoe hole was about this thick, it was about this wide, it was about that long. And so I can apply that to, to the canoes that I'm carving to 
make sure I'm, you know, not losing that refinement that we've, you know, been building over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. How do you see this as helping sustain seminal culture and materials for future generations? In our traditional arts, it might be different than, than other cultures, maybe not. There's a whole lot of cultural knowledge that goes along with, with our traditional arts from stories, specific language and words, and what I call cultural etiquette as well that goes along with making things. So cultural etiquette is kind of like the rules and regulations of, of a tradition and a culture, you know, who can make something, when can they make it, what materials can they use, what time of the year can they uh, do it, when can they collect these, when can they not collect something. And a lot of that stuff has its own stories as well. And so if you lose a traditional art, you're losing all that cultural knowledge that went along with it. So it's not merely just making a basket or, you know, making a, a piece of beadwork or just carving a canoe. There's there's a whole lot of other knowledge that goes along with it that get lost if, it, if those traditions are not maintained. And, you know, it's just, at least for me, I feel personally, it's just really important to, just to learn how to use your hands and, and to, to make something, you know, whether it's something as complex as a dugout canoe or learning some other type of craft or hobby, you know, it's kind of therapeutic for all of us as well to, to learn to make something. And um, I think there's something to that in cultures that, you know, indigenous cultures around the world, like as a pastime, people make stuff and it's, you know, a place to share with family, to share stories and just to, to share time with one another as well. Pedro, what's your favorite piece that you've made over the years? Oh, jeez, my favorite thing. I wasn't expecting this question. <laughs> How about some items that would be in your top five? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I, I love canoes a lot, you know, dugout canoes. And so that, one of the ones I'm working on now, it's, it's almost complete, you know, it's just, I really, you know, love the shape and the form and, and, and how it's really coming along. And so, yeah, I, I do really love shape and form and, and how, you know, they, they fit together and, and make something look kind of graceful and, and, and beautiful. I think that's why I leaned a lot towards sculpture, too, when I was in school and really playing with the shape and, and form. And so, you know, I was making these large sculptures, three or four foot tall ceramic sculptures. And so, yeah, there's one that I have. And it's uh, kind of representative of a warrior, but again, it's very stylized. I'm a seminal warrior, and I think it's probably one of my favorite sculptures. And, you know, the, the body is really just kind of a simple tube, and then it flares out to kind of these broad shoulders. And, um, you know, the head is really stylized. And to kind of replicate face paint, I just I cut away the parts of the face that would be painted. And the other half is uh, has kind of a stylized eye on it and has something representative of, of a turban. But again, unless you're, like, really familiar with the imagery or or what I was trying to accomplish. You might not know that that's exactly what it was representing, but I'm always trying to keep form and grace in, in my mind when I was creating these sculptures. So it's probably one of my favorite sculptures. How about a painting? Paintings? Um, probably the thing I like doing the least is painting. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know why. I think just sitting in front of the easel is just hard for me, but like sculpture and carving, you're kind of, you know, up and moving around a lot more. The painting was a little more static, but I, I did do uh, some painting as part of class projects in, in high school and in college. I did do one that was kind of a satire. Is these two seminal hunters um, walking through the woods and they, they're carrying a, a pole between them, you know, as you would carry a, a, a deer or other animal through the woods back to camp, except hanging from the pole is a slot machine. So I, I called that artwork bringing home the game. So it's kind of a, you know, mixture of, a, you know, traditional and contemporary seminal worlds and, um, you know, how we're still, still might be hunting, but it might be a different kind of hunting now to, <laughs> to make ends meet. This is a twofold question. How do you feel about seminal artifacts or purported 
and really fake or phony seminal artifacts being sold on auction sites like eBay. Anything that's listed as Native American, you really have to look at very closely to, to see if it's an actual Native-made item, whether it's contemporary or historic. It, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of forgeries or even just mislabeled, again, for historic items and ancient items and modern Native artwork. It happens a lot because it's a big business. So much so that the United States passed the, what's it called, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act to try and prevent people from doing this. And, you know, so if you see something for sale on whether it's, you know, eBay or even if it's a really reputable um, auction house like Christie's or something like that, really do the research and see if it matches up with what's already existing in, in museums and collections or what other experts are saying. You know, because again, I've been studying our material culture, not just in my adult life, but even through my teen years. And uh, yeah, I see a lot of things that are labeled as, as seminal or as other tribal affiliations that simply are not, um, especially on eBay. It doesn't mean that there aren't seminal items like, you know, baskets and things that get sold on there, but there's a lot of non-seminal items. Like sometimes it's just like, a, oh, I, it's a coiled basket. I've seen that Seminoles make coiled baskets, so it must be a Seminole basket. Well, not necessarily. Or, oh, I bought this in Florida. It has to be Seminole. Well, not necessarily. You know, there's all these tourist traps for selling stuff from around the world. You know, even in the early tourism days of Florida, um, alongside the, you know, genuine Seminole-made items. So it's, you just got to be really careful, really cautious. Be a cautious buyer. Or even if you're doing just doing research as well. I know, um, you know, another conversation, you know, is talking about how even museums can mislabel things. Because um, I've seen museums with mislabeled uh, seminal items, you know, because again, you know, museums do the best job that they can intentionally trying to dupe the public, but staff isn't always necessarily an expert on everything that's in a museum, especially if it's just like a general history museum um, or general Florida history, you know, they're not necessarily a seminal material culture expert, you know, so they'll do the best job they can at identifying, you know, now that, you know, our museum has been around for a number of years, a lot of times, you know, other museums will consult with our tribal museum to say, hey, does this look right or is our text right or um, are we identifying things correctly or in a, a you know, a culturally sensitive type way? Or are we being informative? You know, so that's the great part of having our own tribal museum is having people uh, coordinate with us to, to make sure that direct history and story is being presented to the public when, when it can be. What's your relationship with the museum? Um, current time, I'm uh, with a, a village crafter. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I worked in the tribe's uh, living village and uh, do wood carving back there. But I've worked in a number of positions while I've been at the museum. Again, like when I was a teenager, I might just get hired for a specific event to, you know, give tours to people if they knew they're having, a, a, you know, influx of visitors or VIPs or something along those lines. When I was in college, I, during the summers, I'd uh, work as a tour guide over the summertime. And then as an adult, my first job there was as oral history coordinator. So just, you know, trying to manage the, the oral history collections that were already there and um, trying to collect new oral histories. And then probably what I did the longest was the position they created was called the traditional arts coordinator, which is great. You know, it, was, it was really allowed me to kind of hone and refine and research our traditional arts. And I was also able to better educate the public on the traditional arts and material culture of, of uh, you know Seminole people. So I was doing you know talks and lectures. I was giving demonstrations and I was doing classes with tribal members um, that wanted to learn about you know different uh, traditional arts. You know, so I did that for a number of years and um, yeah, I really loved doing that. And then other job I had there was a uh, outreach and outreach coordinator. So basically just a person you know sending the outreach staff out to schools and other civic groups and things that wanted to to learn 
learned something about Seminole culture or history. Doing a lot of the traditional arts really helped that and helping you know, other staff with their presentations that they're giving uh, as they went out and to the public. And so, you know, we had uh, at that time it was an all native staff of outreach. And uh, they weren't all Seminole, but they're all native. And, you know, they definitely had a, a passion for, for the history and culture. So yeah, I've had a, a long relationship with the, our museum from being a coordinator to being a tour guide on, while I was off summer during college. We're almost out of time. I want to ask one closing question. What would you want listeners to take away from our conversation today about Seminole Wars and specifically and about the Seminole in general? So for the Seminoles, the, the Seminole Wars was one long conflict. We didn't have the luxury of, of leaving Florida when our tour of duty was over to leave the fight, to leave the, the strain of always possibly being removed, the threat of being killed, the threat of being hunted. And for 40 years, we endured that as a people. Part of the reason much of that sticks with us today, but we did endure it. And I think what's really important is that we're still here. And we've managed to to keep our culture through all of that, through the literal genocide and cultural genocide, trying to get rid of the people. Well, if you can't get rid of the people, and try and and get rid of the culture. And so we've we've managed to survive both of those things. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll continue to uh, survive through through the coming years and through the next generations. And uh, I think that's really what I'd like people to, to know about Seminoles and where we are and where we were. Pedro Zapeta, thank you so much for joining us today on the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.